Well, it has, uh, it's been some time since I had the pleasure of, of teaching uh, to you. Uh, the last time I taught, I covered the bulk of chapter 8 of Acts, and I thought that um, we should finish that chapter this morning, and that way we'll have at least gone through one chapter of one book of the Bible, which means we only have 1,188 to go. <clears throat> it's going to be a long career, I hope. <laughs> um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. Um, get your Bible out. If you don't have a Bible, you do now. There's one in the seat back in front of you. Take that with you. That's yours. Um, and turn to ch- uh, chapter 8 of Acts. Somebody nearby can probably point you to where that is. And we're going to look at the last third or so of this uh, chapter, starting in verse 26. <clears throat> now, when an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who was the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture that told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way, rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Asitus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We know that every bit of it is instructive and useful, God, and we pray that you will speak into our hearts this morning about what are we to take away from this particular passage, Lord, as we go out into our lives uh, in this week before Easter, Lord, and, and think about inviting people to church to hear the simple gospel and of your good news, Lord. Would you just inspire us through this passage, Father, and reverberate in our hearts this week as we go and interact with the world around us. Amen. <clears throat> This is a pretty well-known passage of Scripture. Every uh, illustrated kid's Bible I've ever seen includes this story. Um, And it's always about Philip and what a good dude he is. Um, But to get a head start on the the tool metaphor that I'm going to use a little bit later, um, a hammer is no use without a nail. And Philip is one person. It only takes one person to share the gospel, but it takes two if somebody's going to listen to it. So the eunuch's role here is equally important as Philip's. Let's go through this bit by bit. In verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now angels don't just come for menial things, right? When an angel comes to deliver a message, it's usually because that's a pretty important message. An angel appears to Zacharias to tell him that his son will be called John the Baptist. And angels come to both Mary and Joseph to give uh, information and instructions about Jesus. And angels tend to Jesus after his temptation by Satan and in the garden and before he's arrested. 
Angels inform Mary and the others about Jesus' resurrection. Angels tell the apostles that Jesus has ascended into heaven and so on. <clears throat> when an angel is sent to deliver the message, <clears throat> there's usually something important about it. So our only logical conclusion is that there's something very important about Philip going down to this desert road. It literally means a wilderness, a, a deserted place. This would have been a, a fairly well-traveled highway as it kind of went down into Egypt and beyond. Um, but there's nothing there. It went through the ruins of old cities and that kind of thing. It's just barren. It's like being halfway between Tushi and Wallula Junction. Uh, there's nothing there. Uh, but verse 27 tells us that um, indeed he arose and went and no argument and someone's there. <clears throat> and this and everything else about this section of Acts chapter 8, it, it flies in the face of the odds of things. Um, odds are slim that Philip is going to run into a specific person on this road. And the odds are slim that the guy in this chariot is going to be reading Isaiah. And odds are slim that this guy is going to let crazy Philip come wander up into his chariot because I assume they taught you not to pick up hitchhikers then too. <clears throat> odds are very slim they're going to come across a pond in the desert. And odds are especially slim that the eunuch is going to fall so in love with Christ that he decides to be baptized by the side of the road. The odds for all of this are very slim. But God doesn't deal with odds. He's outside of probability. He's outside of coincidence. In astronomy, there's something called the Drake Equation, <clears throat> which very simply is a calculation for the, the possibility of finding intelligent life somewhere in the universe. And there are a whole bunch of variables in it, um, such as how quickly stars form and how likely those stars are to have planets around them and how likely those planets are to develop some kind of life on them. And we don't know the answer to most of those variables yet because our telescopes and our, our science simply isn't there, um, which makes it very hard to do the math. But to ballpark it for you, let's think about the numbers. There are 160 billion planets in the Milky Way, roughly, we think. And there are somewhere between 100 billion and 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. So you tell me what the odds are that we're here. It's infinitesimally small, but we are here because God is not bound by probability. He chooses what to do. And Philip here is not bound by doubt. <clears throat> he simply obeys and he starts walking. Verses 27 and 28 say, So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the, the Kandake, or Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. We have an, an Ethiopian eunuch, and there are a couple of background points on this for our edification uh, to know. Uh, one is that Ethiopian doesn't necessarily mean from Ethiopia as we know it today. Um, it was more of a generic term for basically all of Africa, south of Egypt. Um, and the Old Testament is often uh, uh, termed Cush, um, which is basically everything from, you know, Egypt on down to, to South Africa. So depending on your translation, you'll see Cush or, or Ethiopia uh, here and, and in the Old Testament too. <clears throat> so he's from somewhere south of, of Egypt, uh, maybe in Sudan, maybe what is actually Ethiopia. We don't really know. Uh, we do know he's a powerful person uh, working for the, uh, uh, the royal family, the queen mother, um, Candace, which is not really a name so much as a title uh, for her. He's in charge of the treasury, which is obviously an enormous responsibility, especially for a kingdom somewhere approaching that size. So this man would have had a lot of power, and he would have had a lot of influence, which is probably why he's a eunuch. A eunuch is a man who's been castrated, and they did this for a, a couple of reasons. Um, sometimes it was done to soldiers because it made men less prone to disobedience. Um, 
And more often, eunuchs were used in royal households and, uh, and uh, palaces because it, it removed any possibility of, of them having some kind of an affair with somebody of the royal family. And because they couldn't have kids, there was no danger of them trying to usurp the throne and start their own dynasty. <clears throat> and so that appears to be the case here. Um, as head of the royal treasury, um, it would make sense not to want the uh, sort of unpredictability of a testosterone-fueled man in this role. <clears throat> This particular eunuch we, we see has been to Jerusalem to worship. That's unusual for a couple of reasons. One is that it suggests that he's somewhere along the path to, uh, to Judaism. Um, he's probably not actually a Jew, but he may be uh, what's called a God-fearer, which would be somebody who was uh, willing to study the, the Scripture and speak to and learn about the, the Jews' God. Um, or he could be uh, a proselyte even, somebody who has gone even to the extent of being circumcised and, and converting as far as one could to actually be uh, Jewish. Uh, the second reason it's unusual for this eunuch to have been in Jerusalem to worship is that, according to Deuteronomy 23, eunuchs weren't allowed to be in the temple at all. So we don't know exactly what he was doing in Jerusalem, but he obviously found it worth his time to make that trip. He'd taken it on himself to travel hundreds of miles, probably over a thousand miles, um, from somewhere south of Egypt all the way up to Jerusalem, even though he technically wasn't allowed to be in the temple based on his ethnicity and his sexuality. So that's quite a commitment to God, I think. Because there are days that I get out of bed and I think, I have to drive all the way out to the church this morning, and it's only seven minutes away from my house. <clears throat> so this eunuch, not only does he take weeks or, or maybe even months to make this trip, um, he takes it out of his time to travel to Jerusalem to worship, but he's also intently studying the scripture on the way back home. He's sitting in his chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. We don't know exactly how he got it, um, they didn't really have mass-printed ones. You know, there was no Gideon's scroll you could just take out of the hotel nightstand. Um, so he spent a lot of money to buy the scroll, probably, uh, on what was already a pretty expensive trip. There's commitment here from the eunuch. Philip doesn't know what the eunuch is doing that he's reading uh, when the Spirit speaks to him in verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Verse 30 says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. So note that Philip has been obedient to this point so far, coming down to this road, and he continues to be obedient here, following the Spirit's instructions uh, to go up to the, the chariot. And, and I love that Luke includes this little detail, that he, he ran to the chariot. This tells us that he's eager, he's excited. Philip is, he can't wait. He feels urgency to uh, obey God's command. And he's not alone because the eunuch, too, is, is displaying his zeal by continuing to pursue knowledge about God through the scriptures. The eunuch here is, uh, he's riding the wave, right? He'd just been in Jerusalem. Uh, probably he'd never been there before. Probably he would never get to go again. This was a once-in-a-lifetime trip, more than likely. Um, but he got to go and worship God. And now he's, he's riding the euphoria of that experience, and he's continuing his commitment to God by, by studying and trying to learn more about him. And, you know, there have been a lot of times I've come home from church excited, you know, fist pumping, yeah, you know, great message, God really spoke to me today, now let's go play video games or something, right? We forget to ride that wave. I don't mean to say that we should only study the word when we feel excited, right? What I mean to say is that um, we have to be honest with how often we actively quench that spirit when we are, because we get wrapped up in our things, <clears throat> sometimes it's making sure you get home in time for the Seahawks game or whatever it is. 
You compare that to this eunuch who has hundreds of miles ahead of him on his trip, and he chooses to spend this time through the hot desert reading scripture that confuses him. I, I kind of enjoy that feeling to be befuddled um, by the word, to have something that, that demands deeper thought and, and more study. I know it can be discouraging, but God has truth, and he reveals it in measures large and small, and he will reward your patience and persistence in studying through the Bible. And so it's important to be eager to learn the way the eunuch is. Even without a teacher, knowing that he's not going to understand it, he's trying. He's pouring over the scripture that speaks about the Messiah. He's trying to figure it out. And it's, it's such a sharp contrast to the verses that precede this in chapter 8, where we heard about Simon the sorcerer who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit and asked Peter to pray on his behalf and who simply didn't or didn't want to understand what God's plan was. Simon the sorcerer, one of the answers handed to him, and the eunuch wants to puzzle them out. And he wants more than anything to be taught. He wants to, to take in knowledge about God. We know this because he asks questions. The eunuch only speaks three times in this passage, uh, in verses 31, 34, and 36. Uh, I'm not counting verse 37 because it's not included in most translations, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but all three times that he speaks, he's asking a question. You notice that? Now, I, I've been blessed with opportunities to teach in a lot of different places. I've taught uh, English in high schools, and I've taught um, writing in prisons, and I've taught marketing at, at conventions and conferences. And you know what the best thing that, that's in common about the best learners in all of those places? is that they're the ones who ask questions. I, I should say that they're the ones who are seeking answers because there is something fundamentally distasteful about asking a question if you're not actually interested in the answer, right, just for the sake of argument. But it's lovely to see questions when there's a sincere desire to learn. So some people want to know the answers in order to grow their own understanding, and that's to be commended because you know, we want to see a, a smart church, a, a brilliant church, um, not made brilliant by scholastic aptitude, um, but by a constant desire for increasing knowledge of the word. Right? We're not requiring PhDs. We ask for curiosity and a desire to, to increase our understanding. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. And Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is a commitment, and the eunuchs made it. He's desiring to grow, and I think Philip catches on to that. He asks the eunuch if he understands what he's reading, and here's the first thing the eunuch says, verse 31. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. He wants a teacher, but, you know, what are the odds of finding a Bible scholar on this road? Pretty good when the Spirit sends him because God is outside of probability. John 16, 13 uses the same word for guide uh, as is used here when it says that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The eunuch recognizes that he can't grasp what's in front of him and he asks for help. This is why I love him. When you don't understand something, ask for help. 
We are so blessed with resources from, from study Bibles to, to commentaries to sermons on tape to, most importantly, people who are steeped in the Word of God. Ask for help when you don't understand something. Ask one of the pastors. Ask one of the elders. Ask your life group. <clears throat> Seek it out in the Word. Never be ashamed to say that you don't know. We have a, a, a lie in our culture that it's not okay to admit a shortcoming. <clears throat> that gets in the way a lot of learning and becoming closer to God. <clears throat> There's no hesitation here for the eunuch to ask him, and, and I think this is kind of a light bulb moment for Philip. Um, he doesn't know why he's here until this point, um, until he hears the eunuch reading from Isaiah, and here's what he reads, verse 32. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And then eunuch asks a pretty good question in verse 34. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who was the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now, the, the verses he read are from Isaiah 53. It's verses 7 and 8 there. But that book and that chapter are so, so incredibly chock full of, of Jesus that I think it's important that we take a little broader look and I want to read verses 4 through 12 there and I want you just to listen and look at these verses and think about Christ especially as we come upon uh, the week of Easter and think about all that he has accomplished and all that he has fulfilled and just look at what it predicts about him. So the Isaiah 53 starting in verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There are at least eight different prophecies about Messiah in that passage. And they're all fulfilled in the life of Jesus um, as they're recounted in the Gospels, particularly in Luke and Matthew. Eight prophecies in that small handful of verses. And it's the perfect jumping off point for Philip, as verse 35 says. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip could not have asked for a better segue than Isaiah 53. <clears throat> He's got a curious student reading a prophecy-rich part of Scripture, and Philip has just spent all that time sharing and teaching 
the gospel up in Samaria, they've both been prepared for this moment, for somebody in the word and somebody to explain the word. It's a remarkable coincidence, isn't it? By complete chance, all these things lined up just right. Just like it was complete chance that Jesus' life happened to fulfill hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, everything from where he'd be born to what he'd look like to how people would respond to him to how he would die. Of course, it's nonsense that it's coincidence. God is outside of probability. The angel speaking to Philip to go down to the desert road is not a coincidence. That the eunuch's chariot shows up is not a coincidence. His trip to Jerusalem, the place that he's at in Scripture when Philip runs into him, none of this is coincidence. God is outside of probability. God has a plan, and he knows every detail. And I, love, I always come back to Psalm 139 for this, of course, verses 1 through 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Job declares God's knowledge to be perfect, says that nothing can be added to it. Paul reinforces that in Romans 11. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9 says, The Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Nothing is new to God. Nothing's surprising to God. He's not sitting up there giggling over the random joy of Philip and the eunuch happening to run into each other. <clears throat> it's not chance. God has been tugging on the heart of the eunuch to come to Jerusalem to worship him, to learn about him. God has been working in Philip's life, and Philip obeys and goes to this deserted place. And through this one interaction, the, the gospel is going to spread farther and wider than if Philip had spent his entire life planning how to do it. <clears throat> it's the perfect situation to get the gospel spread into Africa because the eunuch is already committed to God because God has been doing the work on him. God has been laying the groundwork to make him ready. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. The eunuch is being drawn. That word, it, it has echoes of being pulled in a net. <clears throat> this eunuch is curious. He's going to take good notes. He's in a position of authority in the royal family, so he can speak freely when he gets back home about the gospel. He's a eunuch, which means he's a trusted advisor. Nobody's worried about him saying stuff that's uh, made up in order to usurp power and start his own dynasty. And he's from Ethiopia, a land so far away from Judea that most people would have considered it the ends of the earth. Philip and the eunuch are the perfect match at the perfect time, and they're able to give and receive what each other needs. Speaking of timing, you'll sometimes hear in our, in our seeker-friendly church culture today that it's really important to uh, meet people where they're at. You've heard that phrase? Now, on its surface, that makes complete sense. Um, if someone only has a certain level of understanding about who God is, then you have to kind of start at that level. But there's also, as there often is, a dark underbelly to gracious sentiments like this. The trouble is that meeting people where they're at increasingly becomes twisted into the idea of making people comfortable, of being inoffensive. 
Sometimes it takes the form of putting on a big flashy event for the public, um, just trying to get people through the doors. And then at some point during the evening, somebody casually mentions the name of Jesus, but they do it quietly because they don't want to offend anybody. And it's not really the focus of the evening. And it's not loud and it's not direct, lest we offend anyone. It's the, it's the spiritual equivalent of uh, sneaking a little zucchini into a muffin recipe for your kids. Right? You feel good, but the reality is they're still eating mostly sugar and flour. And, and at some point, one of them's going to notice that one bit of zucchini skin that you missed, and they're going to freak out about the green thing, and they're going to feel betrayed. And they're never going to trust your muffins again. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know this. <laughs> Meeting people where they're at so often gets twisted into sneaking Jesus into things that people already like. But the reality is that sometimes you just have to teach people to eat their vegetables. We are supposed to share Jesus and trust that God will meet them where they are at, that he does that preparation. The gospel's not a ninja sneaking around in the dark and, and all of a sudden he goes, Hiya! and suddenly you're a believer and you have no idea what happened. Right? That's not how it works. Right? The gospel is more like an opera singer. You know what it is and you're either ready for that or you're not. <clears throat> is that enough metaphors for you this morning? <laughs> Similes, I should say. The point is that God is the one who makes us ready. Uh, and Ephesians 1 verse 11 says we're chosen, that we're predestined according to his plan, right? That he pulls us toward him, preparing us for the good news about Jesus that Philip shares. The word for good news there in verse 35 is, is euangelizo, and if you, if you saw the way it was spelled, you would realize it's the root word for evangelist, or evangelize. <clears throat> it means to bring glad tidings, and it means to share the gospel. It means both things, because the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the idea of good news are, are one and the same thing because there is nothing more good than Jesus and there's nothing more newsworthy than the gospel. It took me a while to understand the idea of, of good news and what that means. When I was a kid, we didn't really go to church. My parents were Catholic-ish. Um, and I remember going to service on Easter or Christmas a couple of times. Um, but there was a Bible in the house and it was called the Good News Bible. And it had this white and green cover. It was kind of plasticky. Um, and I always thought it was kind of weird. It was called the Good News Bible and not just, you know, the Bible. <clears throat> um, and when I was, I was 14 or 15 years old, I think, and I was, I was up in the playroom and I was looking for something in the closet. And I had been thinking for some reason about the Bible for just offhandedly recently. And there it was on the shelf in front of me. <clears throat> I found it on the bookshelf and I, I took it in my room that night and I started reading it a little bit. Um, and I got to the first set of genealogies, and that was about it. And I thought, what kind of good news is that, you know? It's you know, the Good News Bible. It should have been called the Boring List Bible. <coughs> I've matured a little bit since then. But I kept coming back to it every once in a while in the evenings when I was trying to avoid sleeping. Um, and I don't know that I learned a lot about it, but I began to get a, a basic kind of sense of kind of the scope of the whole thing. And about a year after that, a guy named Nick invited me to youth group after football practice, which was really just totally out of the blue. But I went, and it was, you know, not terrible. Um, so I went a few more times that fall, and I started going pretty regularly later on. And a few months after that, a girl in my high school class named Chastity, she asked me one day if she could come over to the house and tell me about Jesus. And I said, duh, I guess so. <laughs> Did not respond to that. Pretty lukewarm. I didn't think it would happen, but she did. 
she came over and she told me about Jesus at the kitchen table. And she was the first person who had ever done that. And, you know, I was back in my hometown a few months ago um, visiting my, my parents and, and we were there on Sunday. So we went to church down the street from where I grew up and her dad was there. Um, and, I, and it occurred to me that I'd never thanked her for sharing the gospel with me. So I, I talked to Gil and I said, you know, thank you. And would you pass this along to Chastity? Um, and I learned that day how you make a grown man cry is you tell him that his kid saved somebody's life. Because it wasn't long after that that I, I, I finally prayed to God and begged forgiveness and accepted Christ and started attending church. My life very slowly began to change. And, you know, I look back at that series of events. I know this is a long anecdote, but I look back at that and I think there's no way that any of those people knew where I was at. My parents didn't know that I was curious about the Bible and snuck it on that shelf for me to look at one day. <clears throat> Nick didn't know that I'd been leafing through the Word a little bit and had been trying to figure out what to do with it. Chastity didn't know I'd been going to, to youth group um, and trying to figure out what was all behind of this stuff. None of them knew where I was at. God knew where I was at, and he, he met me there through those people and experiences. I want to be careful in saying that, that anecdotes are not evidence, but they are examples. And God's pursuit of me has been one in my life for sure. Likewise, here in chapter 8 of Acts, Philip didn't know what he was getting into. He didn't know where the eunuch was at, if it was the right time in his life to learn about Jesus. <clears throat> but God had been preparing the eunuch through his own experiences <clears throat> and through the urging of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't Philip's job to, to discern the readiness of the eunuch, but simply to obey God. <clears throat> and because Philip was obedient and well-prepared, he knew how to react when he did find out where the eunuch was at a place of confusion, but sincere curiosity. And through Philip's experiences sharing the gospel in Samaria before this, God had equipped Philip to help that eunuch where he was at and to use scripture to answer his questions. <clears throat> so the reality is that you don't meet people where they're at, church. You obey God and trust him to use you to meet people where they're supposed to be met. And sometimes it's going to go really well and you're going to baptize a stranger in a puddle on the side of the road. <clears throat> And sometimes it's not going to go well, and you might get thrown out of someone's house, or worse. But it's not up to us to discern and decide. It's certainly not up to us to decide who's worthy of salvation. It's not even up to us to decide who's worthy to hear the gospel. You see how Philip doesn't argue with the Spirit when he's told to go see the chariot? Philip could tell from the markings on that thing and from the soldiers walking with it, that was no Jewish chariot. That was from Cush, from Ethiopia. But Philip didn't decide whether the eunuch was worthy to be approached because it isn't our job to decide who deserves to be approached. It's not our job to decide that people who are of a certain race don't deserve to hear the gospel or that people with different political beliefs than us don't deserve to hear the gospel or that people who are richer or who are poorer or who are 10th generation Americans or desperate refugees deserve to hear the gospel. That is not our job. God makes the call on salvation for his own glory. And I know I, I keep coming back to this idea of obedience, and I want to clarify what I mean by that. I don't mean the kind of obedience that just says, yes, sir, all the time. That's not obedience. That's a kind of militarism, which can be useful, but it's not the, the purpose. Jesus didn't want yes men. He wanted yes hearts. People who love enough to obey because it's the right thing to do. People who say yes out of resoluteness and not resignation who say yes because they're saying yes to 
the good news. And when we do manage to squeak the gospel out of our mouths, sometimes good things happen. Like here in Acts 8, where verse 36 says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? I love this question. The eunuch has a desire to be baptized as a, as a show of his confession and conversion and newfound faith in Christ. And he sees the appropriate ingredients right there. In the desert, there's this puddle or lake or whatever it is. It's deep enough for them to go underneath the water. And Philip answers his question in verse 37. If, if your translation happens to have it, it would say something like, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That verse is not in most original manuscripts, but it is elsewhere in Scripture, so we can still use it to answer the eunuch's question. You might recognize it from Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And then you can go on to baptism. And a couple of verses later, we basically get a recap of precisely what's happening in our passage this morning. Uh, verses 14 and 15 of Romans 10 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So if you reverse engineer those two verses, you see exactly the pattern that happens in this uh, meeting on the road uh, down by Gaza. Beautiful-footed Philip is sent. I don't know what his feet look like. I'm just assuming. <clears throat> and he preaches, and the eunuch hears, and then he believes, and then he calls on Christ. doesn't get more step-by-step step than that. So his question, you know, what, what is necessary for baptism? What's going to stop him? Well, what's necessary is belief in, in Jesus, and um, water helps. Um, readiness really is the key ingredient here. For the eunuch, God has been tugging on him for a while. He's been preparing him for this experience in meeting Philip. He's ready to be baptized. And so in verse 38, <clears throat> he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. <clears throat> we have here a story about two men going on their way, trying to become closer to God in their own way. They're listening, they're learning, they're growing, they're seeking. And nobody's standing still in all of this. You notice that? The eunuch went all the way up, you know, 1,200 miles or whatever it was from his home to Jerusalem to worship in a place where he wasn't even allowed to go into the temple. Philip walked all the way down to this barren road, 100 miles or so from where he had been up in Samaria. <clears throat> and when he gets there, he runs to the chariot. Everybody's in motion which should answer the question for you of how does the word of God spread? Not by believers standing still. The only time they stop is in verse 38 to get out of the chariot to baptize the eunuch. So the only time they stop is to then take action. And when that action is done, Philip's gone, caught away by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I have to wonder how, how this guy's going to react to this, to Philip disappearing all of a sudden, um, because he's been seeking God and seeking understanding of the word, and he's finally had this experience of a teacher coming and, and telling him what it means, um, and for him, that guy to suddenly vanish could be absolutely crushing. That could develop some real abandonment issues. <clears throat> but how does he respond? He's not frantic. He's not hopeless. He's not desperate because he's lost his mentor the one person who's been able to explain the scripture to him. It's not the end of his faith because his faith extends beyond the things that he can see and hear and touch. And we're to rely on that same Holy Spirit and trust in him, that same spirit that took Philip away and trust in his plan, trust in the fact that we're tiny pieces in a puzzle that's so immensely big, the, the scope of which only God has the capacity to understand it. You know why the Holy Spirit took Philip away? Because he was done. The Philip, Philip's work was done there. The eunuch had been met where he was at, and now he had to go elsewhere. The eunuch was to go on home rejoicing. What do you think he talked about when he got home? Probably not his time in Jerusalem. I'm guessing that Philip's conversation was a pretty significant part of his <clears throat> speech when he got back home, his newfound understanding of Christ as he could be seen in the Old Testament. Now, some church trad traditions say that this eunuch uh, helped to found uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is the largest of the Oriental Orthodox churches. Um, I can't say for sure that's not. Eusebius has some words about that. Um, but in any case, many people were affected by Christ in that area south of Egypt because of what happened on that road, because of the complete random probability, right, of those guys meeting. <clears throat> God had people there in that area south of Egypt and Ethiopia and Cush. He had people a thousand miles away from Judea that needed to be met where they were at. And he made a way for them to be met. And Philip had elsewhere to be too. Verse 40 tells us that he preached the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So Asitus is about 20 miles or so northish of where Philip and the eunuch probably met, give or take. And Philip was needed in those cities all those towns as he preached his way 50 miles up the coast to Caesarea. God had people there ready to be met where they were at. Now, Philip had quite a life. He was picked in Acts 6 as one of the seven men full of the Spirit to serve those in need, and he was later a missionary into Samaria, which we covered last time I taught, and he was faithful through his days, we find out in Acts chapter 21 that um, Paul goes to visit Philip in Caesarea and, and hangs out with him. He's living there with his four daughters who are all gifted in prophecy. Um, and church tra tradition says that Philip was a bishop of a church in his later days of his life. Very accomplished, but not because he planned it that way, but because he was willing and eager to play his role. But as as awesome as Philip is, I'm more in awe of this eunuch, actually, who is willing and eager and curious and seeking. And in the end, we see that he's joyous. Take a minute and think about that, church, because that's what salvation is supposed to bring. It's joy. Joy is a fundamental component of the post-salvation life of the believer. All through Scripture, there are 
there are exaltations and, and exhortations to be joyful in the Lord. And in 1 Peter 1, uh, he writes about greatly rejoicing in your salvation. In Isaiah 35, verse 10, it says that those that God has rescued, that they will enter Zion with singing, with everlasting joy, will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And the birth of Christ was heralded as good news in Luke chapter 2. When God is at work, joy follows. It helps when you, when you are a properly used tool for his purposes. Both Philip and the eunuch are tools that God uses to accomplish this purpose of sending the gospel message down beyond Egypt and to the ends of the earth, as he said he would. And the funny thing about tools is that they don't in themselves turn you into a craftsman. I have a lot of tools, but nobody's going to mistake me for Norm Abram. <clears throat> if you get that joke, let's go watch some New Yankee workshop later together. It'll be fun. Two people can take the same tools and the same materials and make two very different things. I, I took my kids down to the hardware store a couple weeks ago where they do, they do that monthly event for kids, and they gave each one of them a little kit to build something, you know, a birdhouse or a toy car or something like that. So I took all four of my kids there, and I set them all up at the same table with the same tools and the same paints, and boy, by the end of that thing, we had four very different results. <laughs> the tool's powerless without the craftsman knowing what he's doing. And when the right tool is used by a skilled craftsman, you see outstanding results, like what happened here in Acts. Philip and the eunuch are both tools of different kinds in different ways, both in the hand of the most skilled craftsman. So my exhortation to all of us is to simply be a good tool, to commit yourself to whatever task it is that God has designed to use you for. Not that you have to go and puzzle it out, but you just obey and follow. You may not even recognize that you're doing it, which is all the more reason to live a life that is full of consistency with Christ in everything that you do, so that whatever you're actively doing, you may be useful to God and his purposes. I encourage you to study the word and know it so that wherever you're at, you're meeting people exactly where they're supposed to be met. And that you may use the scripture that they are familiar with, if any, to then talk to them about where Jesus Christ comes from in that text. Because he's throughout this thing. Philip and the eunuch are useful tools, and so they got put to a lot of use. Anybody else have a favorite tool at home? I have one, I have one impact driver that I love a lot. Um, I've got three, and then I've got a bunch of drills. But there's one I always go to because it never fails me. Um, you know, it's only a 12 volt, but it, it still has pretty good torque on it, and it's light, and it's compact, and it's easy to use, and the battery lasts forever, and I can put up a whole fence with it and still have some juice left in it. Never jams, nothing. It's just dependable. And because it has proven itself useful to me, such a craftsman as I am, I use it frequently. And because of that, it's responsible for most of the good work that's been done in my house over the last few years. That's kind of what Philip was for God's spread of the gospel, right? Useful and dependable. He got sent to Samaria and did all kinds of work there. God called him down to the desert road and he did the needed work there without complaining. He got whisked away to the coastal cities of Asidus all the way up to Caesarea because there was work to be done there for which he was the right tool. He had made himself useful. And the eunuch, too, I don't want to blow him by here because he's an equally good tool, just of a different kind. He's clear and persistent and seeking 
And that desire counts for a lot. You become very useful when you're actively seeking God and his purposes and an understanding of his word. So sometimes you're Philip and sometimes you're the eunuch. And sometimes the most important work you're going to do is to ask questions and to admit that you need help so that you can prepared, be prepared for what God wants to use you for. So don't focus too much on trying to meet people where they're at. Understand that God is already doing that through us as we are useful to him. Just have a yes heart for the good news. And may the work that God does through you bring him much glory and rejoicing, both on earth and in heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the goodness of you and your word, your steadfastness through the ages your dependability. Lord, we ask that you would continue to encourage us and show us how we may be useful to you, God, that your spirit would would just be fueling us to be persistent in seeking you out and that we would heed your call and your tug, Lord, and that we would be useful tools as others are are beginning to experience that tug and that, that, that pull from you out in the valley who don't know you yet, Lord. May we be useful in helping to continue to pull them in to understand your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunities we have to speak about you and to study you and to worship you and praise you. Amen.